From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, NP Education Specialist Eve Roberts, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AMP's official podcast bringing unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and to our patients. Chronic kidney disease in patients with type 2 diabetes is not a new problem, but to our patients, it can feel like failure and leave them totally discouraged. With treatment recommendations for patients with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease constantly evolving, nurse practitioners may be challenged more than ever to remain current with the latest information and recommendations. In this episode of MP Pulse, we welcome two incredible nurse practitioners, Timothy Ray and Debbie Hinnon. They will unpack their insights into the management of diabetic kidney disease and offer strategies we can incorporate into our clinical practice. Please join me in welcoming Tim and Debbie. So welcome and thank you very much for joining us on this uh, podcast for AANP's chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes. Um, I'm here with uh, Debbie Hunnan. And we're here to talk uh, a little bit about uh, how kidney disease and diabetes uh, type 2 specifically uh, are interacted. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit more about practice and clinical focused uh, problems with our patient population. Uh, My name is uh, Timothy Ray. I'm a nephrology nurse practitioner. I've been working uh, for 21 years uh, in this uh, practice. I work with uh, three other nephrologists and four other uh, nurse practitioners in a uh, small private practice in the Cleveland, Ohio area. I mainly work in local hospitals uh, doing acute care, but also work in dialysis patients and a chronic kidney disease clinic. Um, I also work with uh, nurse practitioners and students and do a lot of education because I really value teaching what I know and passing that information forward. Um, I also obviously work with AANP on projects like this, as well as some of the nephrology organizations uh, and have recently worked on a book project and a chapter and uh, work nationally with the nephrology nurse practitioner uh, board certification process. Um, But I really look forward to being able to have this discussion with Debbie and just, uh, you wanna introduce yourself? Uh, Yes, thank you, Tim. I'm an advanced practice nurse in Colorado Springs. I work at the University of Colorado Health, and we have a diabetes clinic that is nurse-run. We have three part-time dietitians that are part of our program. We do clinical management, and we have a nationally recognized um, ADA patient education program. So I get to do clinic, I get to have patient education, And we're in Colorado now. I was in Kansas 35 years, but the grandkids are five minutes away. So that has really uh, added a new dimension to my life. But I, like you, uh, get the opportunity to work with students. I have an online diabetes course that I'm doing right now, and we have 11 uh, students from GW in D.C. to Wichita, Kansas, uh, doing a 700-level diabetes course, and I love that. But I also love to uh, teach and, you know, have that chance to work with a nurse practitioner, and I precepted PharmD students for 15 years. So that opportunity to speak and share knowledge and hopefully inspire those that are younger to do diabetes work is really sort of one of my missions in life. So, uh, Tim, you have a very interesting uh, practice, it sounds like. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Sure. Um, so, I, as I said before, I work mainly in acute care uh, in the hospitals. We uh, uh, work in uh three local hospitals, uh, mainly the Cleveland Clinic uh, hospital system. And I I spend most of my time in the hospital seeing uh, patients with uh, chronic kidney disease and end-stage kidney disease and dialysis patients. We also have a local, a couple local uh, dialysis uh, uh, 
clinics that people go for chronic uh, dialysis. Then I go over there and, and review and, and see their uh, I'll see them on dialysis and review their um, their fluid status, the blood work, and things like that that we are required to do. Uh, we have an outpatient chronic kidney disease clinic that I help work with, and then I also uh, work at a local nursing home and help manage the uh, CKD and the uh, dialysis clinic in the local nursing home. As patients, you know, get older, they cannot manage at home, but they still need dialysis. It's been a wonderful option to have them be in a facility that they can get physical therapy and occupational therapy and wound care and have dialysis uh, right along with them and uh, their needs in the same building so they don't have to travel somewhere else. So that's been very, very nice, especially in the Cleveland weathers uh, uh, in the winter. Um, so it's a very challenging but wonderful um, practice that we have. I'm very uh, thankful to work with um, some wonderful nephrologists that uh, value what I do and we support each other and I uh, have the, some other NPs that I work with as well and uh, we really are quite lucky and challenged at this very complicated uh, disease process um, uh, that we can help our patients. What about you, Deb? You mentioned briefly, but... Uh... Yes, I, uh, I think what I do can't compare. You must have an 80-hour week. Goodness. Um, yes. Well, I work in outpatient clinic, and our, our clinic is a nurse-run clinic. In Colorado, advanced practice nurses are independent. So we don't have a physician as part of our, our program. We, when I was in Kansas, we had a collaborating physician. But it is sort of a different level of practice when you're responsible for everything. Mm -hmm. And it has uh, been um, exhilarating, quite frankly. And the clinic that patients are referred to us from primary care providers, uh, NPPA physicians, uh, in fact, we have referrals from the endo clinic down the hall. We provide clinical care and education. So if I get a referral to help start an 80-year-old on insulin, I'll be able to do that and integrate education as part of that. Um, we start GLPs, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. We help people start insulin pumps, continuous glucose sensors, and then we'll have some patients that are referred just for education. So we have an ADA nationally recognized education program and we'll provide education through our comprehensive program with getting started, individual nutrition appointment, and then group classes. But what has surprised me a bit is how large our gestational program is. Mm. Uh, my partner yesterday, I talked to her at our from uh, part of our monthly meeting. She said every single patient I saw today, Debbie, was a gestational patient. Oh my so, gosh! So we are are doing a lot of the insulin management for maternal fetal medicine for mm -hmm. other OBs in the community. But I've got to tell you, our payer mix is forty percent Medicaid, thirty percent Medicare, and that other thirty percent is. You know, Colorado Springs is a big um, military community, so we right. have TRICARE and a little sliver of commercial. So it it feels like our patients are uh, the the have the greatest needs of patients I've worked with throughout my career. It's it's a big challenge and uh, also uh, very satisfying, very rewarding. So yeah, thank you for asking. A lot of my patient population is, is there's a lot of inner city uh, that all we also have rural and uh, nursing home patients and things like that. But the majority of my patients are elderly, uh, but we get patients even down into their 20s. Mm -hmm. We don't uh, work with anybody in their teens or younger, but uh, we have uh, all ages, but the majority of them are older. Mm -hmm. So um, how has your practice changed with uh, treating complications with diabetes over time. I can only imagine, especially with the options with the new, all the new uh, 
medications as well as the sensors and things like that. I can imagine in the last five years how you treat uh, diabetes as well as the complications must as much have uh, changed dramatically. Well, sadly, I can talk about how things have changed since 40 years ago, not <laughs> just five years ago. We had um, urine testing for glucose when I first started. And when we were doing uh, screening for kidneys, of course, the 24-hour urine was in the big brown jug. And right. uh, people were horrified to realize they had to not only collect every drop of urine, but they had to keep it chilled. So, right. so that part of, of monitoring and screening has changed dramatically. But the meds have been an enormous change. And that, as you say, has been uh, primarily in the last five years with the SGLT2 inhibitors. Now, GLPs, surprisingly, have been out about 15 years. And they now are demonstrating renal benefits. But mm -hmm. the SGLT2 inhibitors have been the game change game changer for the medication side of things. For the monitoring side of things, you're right. The glucose sensors have been uh, just uh, for patients making life uh, much more integrated with their diabetes management instead of diabetes management dominating their everyday life. So right. so we've seen enormous changes. And and you've been in, in uh, nephrology for over 20 years. I'll bet you've seen some changes. I have. And I, I remember when I first started, just, you know, the, we had limited options, you know, uh, in terms of the medications. And, and we used to get uh, the number of people starting dialysis when I first started was in the uh, I think high 20s to low 30 percent uh, as a cause of ESRD, and now it's closer to 40, 45 percent. So that as people live longer with the, uh, as they call it, the supersizing of America with obesity and things like that, it's just all progressive uh, diabetic uh, problems. And so it has uh, really impacted my patient populations fairly significantly. Uh, when I first started, we did a lot more uh, treatment uh, with diabetes than we do now. I think in part because our patient, we're so overwhelmed that we can't focus as much on the diabetic diabetic care. We really refer people a lot to uh, diabetes uh, specialists uh, a lot, uh, or we encourage the primary care providers to do so because they're just, uh, it's too much for us to manage and there's too many different options. Uh, but I think it's we've also seen patients that done extremely well with all the different uh, uh, things that they can provide for them. Well, so expand on that just a little bit, Tim. What what has been the greatest change in diabetes that that's helping? And maybe is there reduction in the chronic complications? Um, you know, it seems like you're saying no that it's on the increase. Are there things that have helped us, though? I think some of it is awareness uh, that there's been a lot of really over the last um, uh, 10, 15 years, there's been a lot more push to uh, educate patients early and catch them early and get them on certain medications that can uh, slow that uh progress towards uh, kidney failure or uh, the, the problems with complications. You know, a lot of the different uh, studies out there have shown that early uh, treatments and, and getting people on the right kind of medications can can really impact them and, and in a positive way and help with their, with their kidney failure, with their hypertension, with their glycemic control and things like that. Uh, but I think as we mentioned before, the SGL2 inhibitors, I think, are has been the game changer and a surprise for a lot of people. Uh, and it's almost too good to be true. But uh, we are everything that's pointing out that this is going to be a wonderful thing for our patients. Um, so it's... You... You covered decades with that comment. I might, yes. I might say, yes, the meds are amazing, but I might go back uh, to mention one of the landmark trials. The Diabetes Control and Complications trial, of course, was done with people with type 1 diabetes, 
but the UK PDS was a landmark trial. The United Kingdom prospective diabetes study with people with type 2 diabetes. And, of course, the Kumamoto trial, the Japanese study with patients with type 2. When uh, when these studies were undertaken, there was not consensus that good glucose control made any difference in the complications of diabetes. So these studies were were 10 and 20 year trials with follow-up trials that went another 10 and 20 years to to have the intervention group maintain good glycemic control compared to the control group that didn't. And of course what what showed across all of these trials was that good glucose control reduced the risk of microvascular, macrovascular, neuropathic, mortality, morbidity. It reduced all of those horribly devastating things that happen when diabetes is out of control. So, so what has also, I think, uh, been really an amazing kind of thing to see is that in the follow-up studies that have happened after the initial trials, there has been um, a kind of equalizing, if you will, of the A1Cs in the control group and the intervention group. But still, people who started with good glycemic control have fewer complications. And that seems counterintuitive. And the scientists really don't have good explanations for, well, why is that if everybody's A1C is the same now? And so you'll read in the literature the legacy effect. You'll read about metabolic memory. Somehow the body remembers that you had really good glucose control right out of the gate, even if things slip a little bit later. Yeah. And so so that, to me, was the foundation of what has has helped us as clinicians and providers get smarter so we can coach our patients uh, even more effectively on how important it is to have good control of their blood sugars. And, and so with type 2 patients, a lot of that s- centers around lifestyle, hypertension management, you know, exercise, weight loss. Uh, but but uh, as you've so uh, eloquently pointed out, the new medications, particularly the SGLT2 inhibitors, have now um, been a game changer for kidney disease, particularly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Are you seeing a difference in referrals from um, 20 years ago to now? Um, I would say... Uh, it really varies by provider. Uh, there are some providers that still want to uh, be in charge of their patients, even in late stage kidney disease. And unfortunately, wow. because kidney disease is so complicated, uh, those patients tend to have more complications and more uh, um, problems with anemia and bone and mineral metabolism problems. And some hypertension issues and things like that. Uh, so we really try and encourage the uh, uh, early referral as soon as possible. You know, if if somebody's GFR is less than 60, if they start getting into the CKD stage three range, we uh, would like to at least see the patient and say, hey, they're good, you're doing a great job. We'll see them once a year or call us if you need us, but at least they touch base with us because we can look through their medications and do some initial uh, education and understanding with the patient. But if we start seeing the patients when they're in, uh, you know, CKD stage four, things like that, uh, it's very difficult to uh, do much because the damage has already started to be done. And every once in a while, we see patients for the first time the day they start dialysis. It's kind of sad. Oh, dear. Oh, it happens, unfortunately. but we really try to, to encourage the primary care uh, providers to uh, touch base with us and refer uh, if there's any problems. Certainly, if there's a lot of proteinuria, um, which is obviously so common in diabetics, but if it's an unexplained proteinuria, to let us know, get us involved mm-hmm. so we can, we can touch base because we can sometimes make some even minor changes that might help uh, 
give some better insight to the help management of the patients mm-hmm. and keep them more healthy for a period of time. Well, this, you know, you've gone into a lot of detail with a question that, you know, we were, I was going to ask later, but, but let me back up and ask, what do you uh, recommend? What is your coaching to our primary care colleagues about screening and about treatment? Um, thinking particularly at what they need to do before they make that referral. What do they need to be doing? Well, obviously, um, kidney failure is one of those type of disease processes that if you can, if you look at somebody, you can't tell they have kidney failure. Uh, so getting lab work and getting urine tests are the two key factors to help us determine if there's any kidney problems. If somebody's creatinine climbs, uh, if they're more acidotic, if they have any electrolyte abnormalities, and especially with the urines, if there's any proteinuria, those are the key things. Um, so we know that kidney function declines with age, uh, from about age of 40 on, you lose about 1% of your kidney function a year. So if you have a patient in your practice that is 70 years old, they're going to have some chronic kidney disease just from age related alone. But if they also have some diabetic, uh, issues, even if it's minor or if they have hypertension, uh, anticipate that they do have some kidney problems and that you may need to delve into it a little bit more and, and, uh, and ask us to kind of see if there's anything else we can do because, uh, at that stage, you know, medications can become a problem that, uh, can complicate issues, uh, different antibiotics, use of NSAIDs, those kind of things that we, uh, kind of can help educate the, the primary care provider. You know, they, they are overwhelmed with the amount of knowledge and and what they have to follow. So sometimes just helping us, having us uh, provide a little bit of insight helps them uh, keep their patients uh, uh, as healthy as possible. So looking at the ADA standards of care, and uh, KDAGO now I think collaborates with ADA on that, the the, uh, GFR and the urine albumin creatinine ratio should be repeated annually. Every every person with type two diabetes and at least Correct. five years of type one diabetes. And, Correct. And then what? When that urine albumin creatinine ratio is above thirty, what's the recommendation for medication at that point? Well, certainly if somebody has diabetes and uh they start having any kind of proteinuria, we really try and encourage use of an ACE or a RAS blocker, an ACE or ARB, mm-hmm. because it's well, there are so many studies to show that that uh, pushing those class of medications helps in a, sen- in a sense, as I tell patients, protect your kidneys from the diabetes. It, mm-hmm. it reduces the proteinuric effect, and that has been shown to lessen the, uh, the slope of the kidney failure. Uh, so as they, if they can tolerate the ACE and the ARBs, uh, depending on any, you know, side effects like a cough or of hyperkalemia, things like that, we really push those as much as possible. Um, and then, you know, treatment, getting them on the right diabetic medications, getting me on an SGL2 inhibitor early on uh, is really going to be very helpful as well as some of the other options uh, uh, as well. So people with type 2 diabetes have hypertension, um, either preceding diabetes or after diabetes is diagnosed. What uh, screening and treatments are you recommending thinking about that? Uh, Weight control and fluid and salt management. Um, If we can, you know, Fluid is pressure, so if you can control the fluid, uh, if somebody is hypervolemic, uh, they, but salt is a certainly a key factor in terms of uh, if there's too much salt in the diet, it's going to make people retain fluid, increase the blood pressure, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, getting them on a diuretic, uh, initially a, a thiazide usually, uh, or in late stage kidney failure, more of a loop diuretic um, to help control the hypertension. And then, obviously, as I mentioned, the RAS blockers, uh, that's very, very important. 
Well, I have a question about kind of a, a debatable item, if I might. The person who has hypertension and type 2 diabetes needs to be treated, but the current data is not supporting the need for an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, until there's proteinuria. What's your take on that? Uh, my feeling is that uh, because those are progressive diseases, we know it's going to happen. And uh, if they can, if we can catch it early for sometimes they can have microalbuminuric, I can never say this, <laughs> microalbuminuric uh, losses that really doesn't show up even sometimes on a dipstick very well. But if somebody's been a diabetic for for a while, I think getting them on a RAS blocker is a no-brainer. Um, so even though we know what's going to happen, let's just start early and help prevent that problem from occurring. If there's any contraindications to it, certainly you have to deal with it that way. Uh, but those are usually very well-tolerated uh, medications. And now you've been around for so long, they're fairly inexpensive. Um, and they provide so much support uh, patients with you know congestive heart failure and things like that. They are been wonderful medications for our patient population. So I don't always follow the guidelines from that standpoint. I really treat based on uh, the patient specific. If if they're have hypertension and they're diabetic, I try and start them on a rest blocker. I I think that's proactive. I remember yes. starting an ACE inhibitor on a gentleman who um, was hypertensive, and I can't remember whether he had proteinuria or not, but but he had type 2 diabetes, obviously. And mm -hmm. when he came back for the follow-up, he was hopping mad. And I said, oh, my gosh, what's the matter? He said, I can't, I can't sing in the <laughs> choir. I can't sing in the choir anymore. And it's all started since you prescribed that pill. Yes. So when you um, have someone who has that ACE cough, do you feel like that ARB is giving them that same renal protection? They're all generic now, so the yeah. insurance yeah. companies don't care. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, ACE inhibitors do uh, basically probably about uh, 10 to 15% of the time can cause a cough. Uh, ARBs about maybe 3 to 12%, a little bit less uh, with the cough. So we try and switch them over to, to ARBs uh, if their cough is there. And sometimes it just isn't, uh, even with that, we, uh, we, it's just not uh, uh, tolerated. But we also look at things like, do they have GERD? Do they have some other cause that's causing the cough? Are they in congestive heart failure? So one of the early signs of congestive heart failure is a cough. Are they short of breath and things like that? So not just attributing it just to an ACE or B, uh, but certainly the timing when you start those medications is important to say, just like the gentleman you had, you know, that seems classic ACE cough. Um, but trying to switch it to an ARB first, and then if that's not tolerated, um, the non-dihydroperidines such as verapamil and uh, cartazem do provide some antiproteinuric effects uh, if they cannot use a RAS blocker. So, um, you know, hypertension management is probably equally important to glycemic management with our, mm -hmm. our CKD, our DKD patients. And I might just comment that um, while, while we mentioned the SGLT2 inhibitors, their mechanism of action is what I think brings the uh, most benefit when we're talking right. about renal. The... the uh, SGLT2, the sodium glucose transporters, uh, block the sodium glucose channels in the distal tubules of the kidney so that all that glucose that is typically recirculated is uh, pushed right on out. So instead of recirculating upwards to 100 plus grams of glucose a day, the 50 to 100 grams of glucose is, is secreted, excreted. And with each glucose goes a sodium. So you're losing glucose, you're getting help with blood pressure, you're getting some volume, um, and you're losing calories. So there's some weight loss. 
So, so the the mechanisms for helping uh, reduce the kidney issues and helping stabilize the GFR, I think, are primarily related to intraglomerular pressure. I don't Correct. know. Would you agree with that? There's several theories on what else might might be uh, causing that benefit. Yeah, it, the absolutely. I, th- I think the the hypertension and the uh, hyperglycemia over time, uh, the the suspicion that causes the um, the uh, early hyperfiltration. Uh, they feel is likely due to uh, elevation in the uh, afferent uh, artery pressure and a, a, a decrease in the uh, efferent uh, pressure. And that causes uh, problems within the glomerulus and over time that just causes further damage. So decreasing the afferent pressure uh, by using the RAS blockers and things like that, as well as decreasing volume um, will certainly help. But um, no, I was just going to say one other thing just about the uh, use of the SGL2 inhibitors in terms of the the loss of glucose. Understanding that that glycosuria will has, have an osmotic effect and patients can get quite, uh, they can have quite a loss of fluid to mm-hmm. the point sometimes we have to cut back on their diuretics. Also understanding that the glycosuria, if somebody comes into the hospital or you, you has a test and they have extra glucose in their urine, understanding that that is there possibly because of the medication, not right. because their sugars are so high. Right. So, Great point. It's an interstitial yeah. glu- uh, loss of fluid. But right. but the the CDL drivers had to have letters of to go for their yes. medical exams because yeah. if they yeah. had glucose in the urine, they were in deep oh, doo-doo. Oh, wow. But, Absolutely. But we, for those on SGLT2 inhibitors, of ah. course, we had to write a letter. They should have glucose in the urine because they're yes. on this medication. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a very yeah. good point. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's that's actually a good, very good but point. But you know, your comment also made me think about our patient coaching. It's really important that we coach patients that this is a diuretic, and and uh, the nephrologist I heard speak said the the these meds are comparable to about twelve point five of mm-hmm. hydrochlorothiazide. Right. So indeed, right. if your patient is a thin and crispy, not a fluffy juicy, you know mm-hmm. you may need to really be adjusting those diuretics before you start the SGLT two inhibitor. And coach them to drink an extra glass of water each day so they're not dehydrated. Right. Because, yeah. uh, you know, if somebody does get dehydrated, it, it magnifies the problem of uh, they become more renin sensitive and they can have uh, more potential problems with uh, an ACE or ARB induced AKI if they're dehydrated. So or if they're on NSAIDs or things like that. So. Uh, de- uh, monitoring their volume status is very important uh, in terms of educating them about signs of orthostasis and what to watch for and, and keeping themselves well hydrated is absolutely important and the need for possibly cutting back on the diuretics if they get symptomatic. Yes. Gosh, it's interesting how everything's all connected. It is. It's mm-hmm. it's our body works that way, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. <laughs> You know, the other treatment, I think, that bears some discussion uh, would be the GLPs. And mm-hmm. the glucagon-like peptide have, through their cardiovascular trials, had uh, 20% in more, in some cases, of those participants with GFRs less than 60. And and some of these trials, the Rewind trial, for instance, had 9,000 900 patients. So thousands of people have been in these studies and the companies have monitored some of the things that are real important to us in this discussion today. So so GFR less than 60, albuminuria, um, those kinds of things have been shown in the cardiovascular trials to improve with GLPs. And, and so I think we have to put that on the table as a, another really important treatment strategy. Uh, so when we're, you know, talking to our primary care colleagues, these medications 
that are uh, injectables, once a week injectable, and now an oral GLP are also going to have not just a one percentage point A1C drop, but they're mm-hmm. going to help with weight loss and they're going to have uh, some benefit potentially with uh, stabilizing or slowing the GFR drop and uh, albuminuria. What, and as what's you, been- as, it, well, as you pointed out before, is that those medications, GLPs, are wonderful in that they, they can be used for even late stage kidney failure. And whereas the, you know, as, as of right now, the SGL2 inhibitors are really less than 30%. Once they hit stage four, we really can't utilize them. But at least the GLPs, we can. And that's uh, certainly wonderful. That's an interesting thing to call out uh, because it doesn't matter about liver or kidney. So, mm-hmm. so we can use the GLPs all the way down. Uh, and right. they, of course, have a low hypoglycemia risk like the SGLT2 inhibitors. So the incretin effect with the GLPs is triggered by food. And and with you having a lot of inpatient work, you may be seeing a lot of people on IV, that Mm -hmm. doesn't affect the GLPs. They only kick in to trigger that first phase insulin release based on food that people are eating. So, So they then... Uh, drop off that insulin secretion when the glucose is around 90. So the hypoglycemia risk is very low unless they're already on insulin or sulfonylureas, which I hope you are not allowing in your community. Are you wrestling We're, people to the ground and taking away the SUs? Actually, it's interesting you talked about that because as we were talking um, with the new medications, you asked about how my practices changed over time, we have had much less hypoglycemic problems because people are not on some of the uh, sulfonylureas uh, as much anymore. And or there's a lot more education about watching for uh, hypoglycemia. We do a lot of education about that early on if they're on it. Um, And uh, but it's, you know, that's absolutely true. So, so what uh, are you saying to your patients about hypoglycemia? Um, that especially in late stage kidney failure, it's uh, depending on uh, the medication, uh, but also diet. If you know, one of the problems with when people have, especially very late kidney failure, when they when they get close to dialysis, one of the classic signs is people lose their appetite. They don't want to mm-hmm. eat. Um, and so people, that's just uh, a major problem for diabetics. You know, diabetics are told you need to eat on a regular basis. And I, I ask people, are you eating because you know you have to or because you're hungry? And if they say I'm eating because I know I have to because I'm a diabetic, uh, but I don't feel hungry at all, that's a real classic red flag to us that people may be at the point of end stage that they need to start dialysis. Uh, but sometimes people don't eat and they become hypoglycemic because of the mm. uh, their own insulin is lasting long enough uh, because of the half-life. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they're not on any other medications, that people can get hypoglycemic from that alone. Interesting. The renal clearance is slower uh, with insulin and other meds. Correct. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you brought up, I know we have other questions, but I have to ask you, since you brought up uh, nutrition, what's what uh, tips about nutrition do you share with people? Uh, the importance of keeping uh, some sugar with them uh, mm-hmm. if they need to, to have, uh, you know, a, a carb snack at night. Uh, to um, work closely with the uh, diabetic educators, um, to watch your sugars carefully. Um, Mm. All the things you probably do as well. It's just our patients tend to be a little bit more um, uh, problematic because if they drop, they drop fast and they Mm -hmm. can become very symptomatic very quickly. And if they have hypoglycemia unawareness, the autonomic uh, neuropathy uh, may trigger that. They may not have any symptoms that they would recognize at all. They may Correct. be confused or headache and 
and uh, blood sugars may be 50 or 40 or even lower. So carrying something with them is critical. So so nutrition, uh, do you recommend a dietitian consult when people are um, approaching dialysis or on dialysis? So thankfully, um, dietary needs are well-known need for kidney patients and especially people on dialysis. Um, As I mentioned, they just tend to lose their appetite. So uh, thankfully, um, I I believe at least uh, nationally, at least in our area, all the dialysis units have uh, at least one, sometimes two full-time registered dietitians on staff there that work very closely with the uh, kidney patients. Now, most of them are, are, you know, trained to work with kidney patients, but they all know enough uh, to, to, because diabetes is so prevalent, they know about uh, diabetic uh, needs as well and can help educate and work with their your community uh, diabetic uh, educators or their endocrinologists to help uh, come up with a plan for the best nutrition to control the diabetes, but then they have to stay away from certain medications they can't have from a kidney standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, our patients that uh, are very advanced, they have uh, terrible kidney disease or diabetes, as well as things like gout or things like that. It can be an awful diet, you know, mm-hmm. just what they're so restricted. If you say, okay, you can have so many carbs, no salt or no, no yeah, no salt, um, and you can't have any high purine diet, uh, and you have to do all these things and, potassium, and they're very restricted, right? And it, potassium, yeah. they're very restricted in what they can and can eat. Uh-huh. So it's you know, plus the low phosphorus needs and stuff. Our dietitian that has been right next door to me has her renal certifications as well as her diabetes certified diabetes educator credentials. And I went in to talk to her before we did this to say, so how can I put a positive spin on this? Because as you just pointed out, it just feels so overwhelming and restrictive. And uh, Patricia said, you know, we start with this is what you're doing for diabetes. And so we just want to add a few things to that. You want to have fruit. Of course, you can have fruit. But let's look at those things that are not as high in potassium and phosphorus. And and so instead of having, you know, an orange, maybe you have a a cutie, a tangerine, uh, and you don't have it every day. You spread it out. So she was trying to sort of lay out for me how we put a a more positive spin on this so people don't feel deprived. And and I think the dietitians are so gifted at at helping people kind of think through. And they have to know every little detail about the electrolytes and the fluid. And, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's just overwhelming to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a catch 22 that we have to eat to survive, but what uh, what we do take into our bodies uh, can hurt us or kill us if you if you if you take too much uh, or the wrong thing and because of the kidney failure and the the kidneys uh, uh, how it metabolizes and balances the electrolytes and the fluid base and the acid base uh, and the diet has such a big part of that and then you toss in diabetes on top of that it really complicates uh, what the patients can eat down the road. Very interesting. So, so, so Tim, I've, I've sort of taken us down a rabbit trail. Um, any questions that come to mind you want to have us talk through? I don't think so. One of the, uh, I guess one of the things I did want to go down is in terms of we work with, uh, you know, we're both in specialty areas and what can we both uh, do to uh, pass on to our uh, nurse practitioner colleagues in primary care and what kind of strategies or screening things can they do to uh, for uh, preventing uh, diabetic kidney disease uh, down the road? So what kind of things do you tell your your uh, primary care colleagues that they can do early on? Well, you know, top of mind for me 
is to be sure that they have referred their patients for diabetes education. And I think we sometimes think we have to do it all, and we can't do it all. And that patient that is very well educated and has really integrated some lifestyle changes into their life will have better control of their diabetes and will feel better empowered to do self-management. So, so while I think our primary care colleagues are very adept at screening and starting metformin and hopefully SGLT2 inhibitors and GLPs, getting that patient up to speed is mm -hmm. really, really going to make their life much easier. And, right. and so uh, not just a consult with the dietitian. Patients need to know about the, you know, pertinent to our topic today, the standards of care, which right. we call your to-do list. Right. You have to have annual eye exam, foot exam, A1C every three months, and mm -hmm. kidney screening, a GFR, and a urine test. So, Correct. Absolutely. So that kind of thing, our, our primary care colleagues are probably ordering but the patient needs to be engaged because I see that urine test missed a lot of times. We're very oh, good at ordering. Yeah. yeah. We order yeah. five gallons of blood to be drawn, but I think right. we forget that right. urine test. Right. And it tells so much. The urine test is a very inexpensive thing that can really pick up very early on if there's some underlying uh, kidney disease uh, that related to diabetes. If you see the early proteinuric losses, from three years ago, they had a little bit of trace protein, and then they have plus one, and now they have more. And you know, you follow that trend, and you can it just mimics their trend of their diabetes and their the rest of their disease processes. But if you don't have that, you can't uh, intervene as easily uh, to know. Totally agree. Yeah. So. Tim, I think it would be really helpful uh, to get a picture of your your extended practice, your clinic, and how you interact with all of the different clinics and specialists, because I think there's some really unique things that happen in your world that that we need to know about and try to figure out how can we duplicate that if we don't have that that same expertise all under one roof. Would you talk to us about that a bit? Absolutely. So because kidney disease is not a disease in and of itself much of the time, it's usually a secondary disease process that's caused by diabetes or hypertension or age or things like that, um, we end up... Uh, getting patients uh, that have a lot of complicated problems. And so we have patients that, you know, they may have just had seen a primary care provider only and they've never, they haven't seen anybody else. And at the same time, we get the patients that have uh, seen a cardiology on a cardiologist on a regular basis, or they see endocrinology, or they have multiple specialists. We get at the whole gamut of, of patients. So, because it's so complicated, uh, we've developed what's called the chronic uh, kidney disease clinic. Uh, these are clinics or outpatient clinics. Uh, we have one. It's uh, there's three. There's three of them now uh, at the local hospitals. Um, I help work with one of them, and these are uh, clinics that we send patients to that are a little bit uh, patients that are have required a little bit more uh, hand holding and and, and care. But um, at the clinics, one of the nice things is it's uh, coordinated within the hospital system. So they have um, the resources of the hospital. Uh, so they have the pharmacist there. They have the labs there. They have radiology there if they need x-rays. They have the pharmacist there. Uh, they have the dietitians there. Um, and so there's a lot. They have the social workers there. They have a lot of resources that... If the patient's in the clinic, literally you can make a phone call and the somebody can come and, and help work with the patient. And the goal of our clinic is to keep people out of the hospital and off dialysis. Wow. And they've done an amazing job. Uh, we actually did a study um, and got, gathered some data. This has been a number of years ago, but uh, 
the nurse practitioners and they, these clinics are nurse practitioner run. Um, nice. They, they have, um, usually there's a nephrologist and a cardiologist that are basically the medical directors of them, but the clinics themselves are nurse practitioner run. And they did gather some data a few years ago uh, of uh, looking at patients' uh, kidney function, their diabetes, their hypertension, and a lot of data. And we found with, with excellent care and intervention, they were actually able to uh, slow up the kidney disease uh, process so much so that in some of the patients actually improved their kidney function very slightly. I'm talking like 1%. But if you think about it, people that uh, lose 1% of the kidney function year from age alone, then diabetes and hypertension, the drop of uh, the slope drop is usually much higher. And to actually mm -hmm. flatten that slope or, or have it improve was fairly dramatic. And they actually uh, were able to present that at the National Kidney Foundation's uh, um, uh, convention a number Very of years exciting. ago. Very yeah, exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. And the patients do fabulous. They love the, in a sense, the attention and the fact that when they come in there, it's a one-stop shopping. Mm -hmm. They can call the uh, cardiologist and they can call their primary care people and, and they can catch things uh, very early on to hopefully keep them at home as long as possible. So that's been a wonderful, wonderful clinic for us to utilize. That's got to make a difference in quality of life. It does. And the nice thing is the hospital system is the one of the ones that's really supportive because, you know, it is a business and the hospital system recognizes that uh, they get patients in their their system and, and it's a business for them uh, so that they they're very supportive of that as well, which is that was a, a way for us to uh, to make this happen. So for those of us that don't have one-stop shopping, we're doing our best with primary care. We're doing our best with diabetes management. And we would refer to you when GFR begins to drop. But is there anything else we could do to kind of help create that, that team of experts virtually? Well, thankfully, I think there's... Communication is is going to be really key, and just just to if there's questions to reach out and uh, and ask, you know, even if you don't quote refer, if you uh, a quick phone call, hey, I have Mr. Jones here. This is what's going on. What do you think? Uh, and if we say, yeah, I, I, let's send them up and see us in the office uh, fairly soon. Or if you just say, hey, it sounds like he's doing a great job. Let's make some recommendations and you can call us if the things get worse. So communication is really going to be key. And I think recognizing that we're all, we're all trying to do the same thing and get the patients better and live longer and have a good quality of life. Uh, and to respect each other's specialties and what we do, uh, I think it's going to be really important. I love that. I call that a curbside consult. Yes, and yes, absolutely. So, you know, what I'm hearing you say is know your colleagues, know their expertise, and develop enough of a relationship with them that you can call and say, yeah. hey, could I have that curbside consult? And the nice thing is, uh, you know, I've had, I've been teaching students for so long. I have so many NPs out there in cardiology and endocrinology and pulmonology and primary care. I know everybody, and so I can call everybody, and which is really, and they can call me. I have students uh -huh. from years ago that call me uh, just and say, hey, Tim, I have this patient. What do you uh -huh. think? And I think that's great. And I, I do, too, and I love that. I think that's the highest compliment of all. It is. It's great. I, I absolutely love the interaction, and, and I, to be able to get calls from physicians as well as PAs, I think is also fabulous as well, because we're all in it together. We're all trying to do the same thing. I agree. So, so do you think we should kind of wrap up by uh, maybe talking about patients and what's their responsibility and how we can support them the most? Yeah, we, I mean, we've talked before just how complicated this disease process is, both diabetes and kidney failure separately, and you put them together and it's just as overwhelming for patients. And the patients 
get this deer in the headlight, they're just, oh my gosh, I can't do this. And to just provide that support, be there for them, encourage them and tell them they're doing a great job, you know, pick even one little thing that they're doing well and, and, and so that they feel like they're not, a, they're not a failure. Um, even if their hemoglobin A1C is 10, you know, <laughs> try and pick something that is this benefit that, Hey, you're doing a good job with this. We have some things we could work on, but keep working on this and, and things like that. But I think that patients do get overwhelmed and they get, uh, uh, they feel that they're a failure and, and it just, it helps feed into things. But I think just being there for them and, and giving them uh, support and guidance is really helpful. I agree. And I, I think, um, but it, you know, that time you, uh, every once in a while I'll cry with the patient because their story mm -hmm. is overwhelming. And, yes. and then they'll look to me for some guidance or leadership. And I may or may not know what to say, but I right. always know who to call because like you, I'm old enough. I know everybody. Mm. And, and I can't tell you how, um, how I think impressed a patient is when you, number one, share that level of emotion with them. But you yes. also, number two, kind of say, you know, just a minute, let's call somebody. And then you pick up the phone and you do it mm -hmm. right there while yep. you're with them yep. in the visit. Yeah. And, exactly. And so you've you've sort of reached beyond your expertise to get someone else to to help you with that. And and you know I believe that um helping support people is a, a huge important thing, but we also have to identify their barriers. I'm I'm always discouraged and frustrated and grumpy when I hear people say, "Oh, they're non-compliant." Right. Oh, they're they're non-adherent. Well, those are words we should get out of our vocabulary because we have to find out what's the barrier. Why right. can't they take their medication? Why aren't they doing their glucose monitoring? Right. right. And right. find out what's the barrier, what can we do to help address that and and then try to uh, then build their confidence and motivation to gain their commitment, you know, on a scale of one to 10. What, yeah. How do you think you can do on this? Oh, right, you right. think a seven? That's awesome. Yep, absolutely. So I think that nurses and nurse practitioners, that's one of our best uh, support uh, and why we're so good at, at what we do, because we do listen to the patient and we are... Um, uh, very human uh, and honest with the patients. So if I were going to say the most important thing I think we can give patients, I would say it's hope. Absolutely. When, when people graduate from the diabetes education classes that I get to teach, I'll do this kind of thank you for joining us. Keep your batteries charged. It's so important. It's self-managed. We're with you this many minutes of the year you're mm -hmm. in charge of diabetes all the rest of right, the time right. and Absolutely. you must have hope so i write hope on the back of my business card and i give that to people as they graduate diabetes class that's great that's that's awesome uh so well i uh really greatly greatly appreciate all the insight and and uh support you have uh, given everybody and given me and this has been wonderful uh having this discussion with you debbie well uh, and i i so appreciate knowing you tim because i'll put you on speed dial and use you for my curbside consult thank you <laughs> anytime okay absolutely and All i right. hope to be able to see you in person at some point okay thanks bye-bye <laughs> thank you tim and debbie for joining us today You've provided so much information and shared your perspectives and expertise on this topic. So I thank you both for taking the time to join us on MP Pulse. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. If you want to be part of your National Professional Association and add your voice to 118,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide, I urge you to become an AMP member. Membership gives you access to so many benefits including tools and resources for your practice and the AMPC Center with hundreds of free CE. 
If you want to learn more about chronic kidney disease and diabetes and earn continuing education credit, visit the AAMP CE Center at aamp.org slash CE Center. Thank <laughs> you.